Well, my thanks to the musicians for leading us in our time of praise. My thanks to uh, Exercise as well for uh, that really encouraging look into uh, that, that song. Thank you very much uh, for that, Exercise. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you all. Thank you for coming along. Uh, this certainly looks different. Um, I don't know about the kids in here, but the 10-year-old in me really wants to scramble up to the top of that uh, scaffolding. Oh, I will try and restrain myself, David. Don't worry. So this is the penultimate study in uh, our studies in Nehemiah. And this morning, we're at the end of chapter 12. So if you have a Bible there, we're reading from chapter 12. And for the sake of context, we'll break in at verse 43. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 408. Nehemiah 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense." We're going to think about this passage in three parts. We're going to start off by reminding ourselves of the background to this story. And then we'll see why Nehemiah had to cleanse the temple. And then we'll finish off by seeing how he cleansed it. So firstly, what was the background to this section of the book? Well, the rebuilding of Jerusalem was finished. This huge project that Nehemiah oversaw had been completed. 
The city had been destroyed whenever the Jews were taken into, into exile about 140 years before this. But now they had started to return and the city was built up again. But rebuilding was only the first half of the story. Because after the rebuilding, the people began the much deeper work of recommitment. Those are the two major themes in this book. Rebuilding in chapters 1 to 7 and recommitment in chapters 8 to 13. One leads very much into the other. Both were essential for the renewal of this community for the glory of God. The people came and confessed their sins to the Lord. They promised to live as his people again, and they renewed the covenant that God had made with their ancestors. So in chapter 12, when they all came together for this ceremony, for this dedication of the wall, it was also a time of personal dedication as well. And right away, the people started practicing what they had promised. And that's what these last verses of chapter 12 are all about. God said that some of the offerings that the people gave to him should be given to the priests to support them in the work they were doing in the temple as they led the people's worship. And Nehemiah wanted to be certain that that happened the way it should. So he made arrangements for the administration of the tithes and the other offerings, and people were put in charge of the storehouses where they were all gathered up to make sure that it was all collected and given out in the way that the law said. Nehemiah actually broadened the scope of that law to include the Levites as well as the priests who helped to teach the word of God. And the gatekeepers and the singers who could easily have been ignored and overlooked were included as well. They were really valued for the part they played in maintaining the people's worship. Chapter 12 paints us a really inspiring scene of what a God-centered community should look like. A community full of generosity and obedience and determination and thanksgiving and joy. It's a scene with almost limitless potential for the Lord. He could use people like these to achieve anything. But of course, like happened so many times before, it wasn't long before that potential was under threat. And unfortunately, that's the story of this final chapter. And the problems began right in the heart of this worshipping community, in the temple itself which is where our reading has brought us to this morning, to this story of Nehemiah cleansing the house of God. But why did it have to be cleansed? Well, it all began when they went back to Scripture. The opening verse of chapter 13 tells us, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And whenever they looked carefully into God's word, it brought their attention to something that wasn't quite right. His word told them that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And both of those peoples had come into their society over the years. It's a law that's found in Deuteronomy 23. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you come out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. You shall not seek their peace or prosperity all your days forever. Now, at face value, that might seem like a very xenophobic mentality, maybe even racist. But there was a crucial reason why God made this rule. Because not only had these people turned away from Israel when they really needed help, and not only were they famous for attacking Israel without provocation, but these two nations both worshipped false gods that had led Israel away from the Lord many, many times. Their idolatry was infectious. And if that idolatry was allowed to seep into this rededicated community, 
The spiritual life that they had rediscovered would be drained out of them in no time. And they would be right back to where they started. But look at how the people responded to this law. They didn't just hear God's word. They were also willing to obey. As soon as they heard it, they took steps to put this right. And this is the key for all of us as God's people. Not just to listen to his word, which of course is important. But to listen with a willingness to obey. Whatever it says, even when it isn't easy, even when we maybe don't completely understand why we're being asked to do something, hearing isn't enough. Obedience is critical. We need to be serious about the authority of his word over us. And this renewed Jerusalem was certainly serious about it. They proved that by making the difficult step of separating themselves from these other nationalities. Which, again, sounds horrible. Because what about people who had intermarried with these other nations? And what about their children? Did that mean that they were just thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem? Well, of course, that's not what happened. They were only separated from Israel if they refused to turn their backs on idolatry and accept the Lord as their God. Ezra chapter 6 talks about that. If they got rid of the false gods from their lives and they turned to God's truth, they became one of his people. The book of Ruth is the precedent for that. She was a Moabite, but she said, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And she didn't end up just becoming a part of the community. She also became the great grandmother of Israel's greatest king. You might be tempted sometimes to think of God as someone who doesn't like certain types of people, whoever they might be. But the truth is that he fully embraces anyone who comes to him in faith, whoever they are. That's what the cross is all about. If we turn to the Lord Jesus, even though we were God's enemies because of our sin, he actually takes us into his own family. Ruth the Moabite found herself in the family line of Christ. That is what God is really like. And that is what this rebuilt Jerusalem was meant to be like. And it also points ahead to the future, to a new Jerusalem, which God is building right now. A city that's going to come down from heaven itself, where people of every kind, from all nations on earth, will be gathered as one people, with one God. God wants all of us, whoever we are, to be a part of his community. So in the context of this dedication ceremony, this was a very, very important resolution because it protected the people from destructive idolatry. It basically protected them from wasting their spiritual potential. So things had started off really well, but of course, it didn't last. Everything began to change very quickly once Nehemiah's back was turned. Nehemiah was on extended loan from the Persian Empire during this rebuilding project, but now his time was up and he had to return to Susa to the king. And it was a very long journey. It was about 1,100 miles in total. It took 55 days to get there. And Nehemiah's opponents took full advantage of his absence. Eliashib, who's very likely the same Eliashib from chapter 3, the high priest, didn't seem to agree with Nehemiah's policy of separation from these other nations. And he had actually given one of the larger chambers in the temple to an Ammonite, a man called Tobiah. And we've already come across Tobiah 
in chapters 2 and 4, Tobiah had done whatever he could to stop the rebuilding. He opposed God's work. But for some reason, he was given a place in God's house. There were lots of rooms surrounding the temple where the priests and the Levites had their own rooms. They had their own accommodation. And one of the larger rooms was used to store the tithes and offerings that we read about at the start in chapter 12. And this room was essential if they were going to keep God's law properly. And Eliashib was in charge of those rooms. He was in charge of the chambers. And we read that he prepared this room for Tobiah to use. He took the tithes and the offerings out and Tobiah moved in. But why did this happen? Well, verse 4 tells us that Eliashib was related to Tobiah. Their families had probably intermarried somewhere along the line. And we're not told the exact details of it, but an agreement of some kind existed between the two that meant that Tobiah got this chamber all to himself. Now, don't be fooled. Tobiah had no interest in God. That is obvious from his behavior earlier on in the book. He wasn't there because he wanted a relationship with the Lord. He wasn't the least bit interested in turning to him. This chamber was all for him. This was his own personal dwelling place. But God's word said that the temple was to be sacred. Into that place that was meant to be kept completely holy, the high priest allowed what was unholy to come in. Tobiah, no doubt, filled that room with his own gods. While the rest of the Jews followed the scriptures, Eliashib seemed to turn a blind eye. He had fallen a long way from chapter 3 when he had led the charge in the rebuilding, when he had set the standard for everyone else to follow. Now here, he should have been setting the spiritual standard. Part of his job was guarding the temple from defilement. The people promised in chapter 10, we will not forsake the house of our God. But here it was, forsaken by the very one whose job it was to guard it. Now we don't have a physical temple this morning where we meet with God the way that Israel did. In our new covenant in the Lord Jesus, he has superseded that entire system of sacrifices and offerings. But it's every bit as possible for us to forsake the temple today. Now what do I mean by that? Well, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us about the church. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple. Literally, you are the holiest of all. You are the inner sanctuary. Do you not know that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The church, not this building, but this body, this collective of Christians here this morning is God's temple today. Each of us are living stones in that structure. We are the place where God dwells. And Paul would want to warn us, just like he warned the church at Corinth, that this temple can very easily be defiled. Now, defiled by what? Well, here's some of the things that defiled the Corinthians. Jealousy, division, Strife, arrogance, pride, sexual immorality, 
greed, selfishness, idolatry, false doctrine, disorder. Each of those things were a pollution of God's house. Because just like God's Old Testament temple, this temple is meant to be holy, as God is holy. We are meant to be like him. We are meant to be clean. Now this morning, obviously we're surrounded by our own rebuilding project. It's kind of hard to ignore. And it's really exciting to be taking the church into the future. I'm sure you're as excited as I am to see what it's all going to look like whenever it's done. But while we're focusing on the renewal of this building, it's maybe also a good time for us to take stock of where we are as a church community. It might be a good time to follow the example of Jerusalem and recommit ourselves as a fellowship to the Lord, to rededicate ourselves to him all over again. And for us to do that, we need to begin by asking ourselves quite a difficult question. We need to ask ourselves, are we holy? Are we clean? Now forget about the building for a minute. Forget about what color the new carpet's going to be and what the new pew cushions are going to look like and whether the new chairs are going to be comfortable or not. What about the people who meet here? If Paul was to look at all of us this morning, would he see a holy temple? Or would he see any traces of jealousy, division, arrogance, pride, immorality, greed, disobedience? And that's not just a question we need to ask collectively. Each of us need to ask that same question of ourselves. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes on to say, Do you not know that your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's not just the church body, it's us, you and me. God actually dwells in us. He has made his home in our hearts. So we'll have to be very, very careful what else might be dwelling in our hearts. We have to be careful what else we might have given a home to in our lives. Have we maybe allowed a bad habit to develop that we thought we had under control, but now we find that we can't go one day without doing it? What about what we consume, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to? What about... Our imagination? What do we spend our time thinking about and dreaming about? What about our priorities? What do we give importance to? Is God happy with what's going on inside us? About three years ago in work, I spent four or five weeks going around inspecting all of the rental properties that we look after to check them all out. And in that time, I'm pretty sure I got to experience the entire spectrum of how people live. In some houses, everything that could gleam was gleaming, while others might be prime candidates for how clean is your house. But every house I went to, I had to go there with the same question in my mind. I had to go there asking, is the owner going to be happy with this? Will they be pleased with how the tenant is keeping their house? 
Yes, it's the tenant's home, but ultimately, it doesn't belong to them. And ultimately, they have a responsibility to keep it to a certain standard for the landlord. And it might do us no harm to ask a similar question ourselves. Would the Lord be happy with what's in here? Am I glorifying God in my body? Not just on the outside, but on the inside. We are not ours. We are his. And lots of things can creep into our hearts that God does not like. If we don't guard ourselves from those things. Jerusalem was very good at watching the walls whenever they were threatened with attack. But they also needed to watch their hearts. The hearts of our church and our own hearts are always vulnerable. Now thankfully for Jerusalem, Nehemiah got wind of what had happened. And he was so affected by it. He was so grieved and he was so heartbroken by what was going on here. That he had to come back and sort it out. He wasn't going to overlook it. He wasn't prepared to turn a blind eye just to keep the peace. He wasn't going to compromise. Even though it was anything but convenient. Even though it meant he had to take another leave of the king. Even though it meant another two month journey. There was nothing worse for Nehemiah than seeing the name and the house of God dishonored. He had to take action. I wonder, do we care as deeply about the honor and the glory of God as Nehemiah did? Do we care about his honor and his glory in our lives? Is that the kind of people that we are? Well, that's who the Lord wants us to be. And it means that whenever the enemy gets a foothold in our church or in our lives, we have to do something about it. And there was only one response as far as Nehemiah was concerned. So thirdly and finally, let's see how the temple was cleansed. Well, Nehemiah did two very simple things. He removed what shouldn't have been there, and he restored what should have been. Firstly, without any compromise or any discussion, he went in and he threw everything out. He tossed out all of Tobiah's furniture and everything that didn't belong in there, he turfed it out with his own two hands. And the application for that for believers today is very simple, isn't it? For our church, it means that whatever God's word expressly says does not belong here, whether it's a kind of teaching that doesn't match up with the Bible or a compromise on God's moral standards or playing fast and loose with New Testament church order, or a disruptive influence that's causing divisions in this family, then without any compromise or any discussion, it's to be removed. It's not to be tolerated. The leaders of a church have to deal with these kinds of issues wisely, but resolutely. Now that might mean some difficult conversations. If someone has been actively living in disobedience, it might mean that in love they're to be shown what God's word says about that lifestyle. And it's made clear to them that it's not acceptable. Our church community life must always be brought into line with New Testament teaching. We need to be both vigilant and resolute. And in our own personal lives, it's no different. Whatever God's word says is wrong, 
We have to throw it out. Sometimes, literally, we might need to throw things out. That might mean clearing out some of our DVD collection or getting rid of something on our phone or maybe taking a step away from friendships or relationships that are damaging our witness and our spiritual development. Now, that sounds harsh, but sometimes that's necessary. Or it might mean amending our attitude to other people. It might mean praying for them instead of building up resentment towards them. It might mean changing our priorities. It might mean exercising self-control whenever we're tempted. It might mean disciplining our minds to stop thinking about certain things, bringing every thought into captivity for Christ. Because his Holy Spirit, who is dwelling in us, is grieved to his very heart whenever we allow things in that aren't holy. He's far more grieved even than Nehemiah was. Look no further than John chapter 2, when Christ went to Jerusalem and he went to the temple. Instead of finding the kind of worshipping, godly community that Nehemiah had done everything he could to build, this is what he found. It says, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And God's house was meant to be a place where God and man could meet together. It was meant to be the place where people could find them. This place where they were selling animals was the place where the Gentiles could come to worship. But this cattle market that they had set up was keeping them from doing that. It was obstructing the whole purpose of the temple. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations who trusted in God. It wasn't meant to be a place of business. So what did Christ do about it? Well, John says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If he felt that way, about the temple building. Imagine how much it must grieve him when we pollute ourselves. When we pollute the very life that he paid for with his own blood on the cross. He took all of our sin onto himself so that we could be holy. So that we could fulfill our purpose in him. Not so that we could let sin back in again. Peter says we are to be a holy priesthood. I was clearing out some of our kitchen cupboards a few weeks ago. I'm a hoarder. And one of our big cupboards had gradually become a dumping ground for random stuff that I didn't know where else to put. So eventually, after five years in our house, I finally got around to doing it. And at the very back of the cupboard, I came across a stack of plates from Debenhams that I had forgotten all about. They had been given to us as a wedding present, and to be completely honest, I didn't even know we had them. So my apologies if it was anyone here who bought them for us. And they were really nice, and they had been lying in the back of that cupboard just gathering dust and dirt for the past five years. So we took them, and we cleaned them up, and we started using them for what they're meant for. And that's what holiness is really all about. It's being cleansed so that we can be put to our proper use. What Christ did in the temple that day, in John chapter 2, 
is what he wants all of us to do. He wants us to drive out what is unholy. He wants us to be consumed with that very same zeal for the glory of God. And you know, he will help us to do that. He will help us to make those changes. He will help us to drive those things out if we're willing to let him have his way in our lives. This morning, let's begin to cultivate that same intolerance of what grieves the Holy Spirit. And let's begin to cultivate the same willingness and resolve to deal with it. But Nehemiah didn't just remove. He also restored what really belonged in that place. When they cleared out the chambers, they brought back the vessels, the offerings, and the frankincense. They brought back what belonged there. We don't need to just dethrone the idols in our hearts and the things that don't belong. We also have to put the true God back on the throne. We have to allow him back into center place for each of us. We have to put him as our priority. And can I suggest that a very simple way of doing that is to give him time every day. Time when he can speak to you and you can speak to him. When you can get to know him more deeply through the Bible. When you can start to allow his word to regulate your life. It's only then that we can be the kind of individuals and the kind of church like the, like the community here in chapter 12. Full of generosity and obedience and joy and worship. The kind of people that God can use to achieve amazing things for him. So, as we close this morning, we are the temple of the Lord. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? That the Lord Almighty wouldn't only dwell among us, but he dwells in us, in our church and in our hearts. And our temple unfortunately, is constantly at risk. If we ever get away from listening to and obeying his word, all kinds of things can creep in that ultimately are going to decay and destroy our spiritual potential. Let's keep to his word. Let's always be on our guard. Let's always ask, is God pleased with this? Does this glorify him? And let's also be resolute in dealing with whatever doesn't belong in us so that we can all be the holy priesthood that God wants us to be. May the Lord help us to glorify him. Let's just close our time together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that whoever we are, wherever we're from, whatever our lives might have been like, when we turn to Christ in faith, we become your people. We thank you, Lord, that there is a place in the Father's house for us. We thank you that you have brought us into your family. You have made us a part of this worldwide community of faith. And our Father, we pray for this church as the refurbishment of this building begins, as we look forward to the future. We pray, Lord, not only for your blessing on the physical building work, but we pray also for your blessing on the church that meets here every week. We pray, Lord, that we will be the kind of spiritual community that pleases you. We pray, Lord, that you will help us at this time to recommit ourselves to rededicate ourselves to you all over again. Help us, Lord, to come to your word afresh with hearts willing to listen and hearts willing to obey. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant, to guard ourselves against what's unholy. And Lord, if we have failed in any way, we pray for your grace. We pray for the help that we need to remove whatever doesn't belong in us. 
We pray for your help to restore you to your right to your rightful place in our lives as our Lord and our God, that in everything we may glorify you. Accept our thanks for your Son and for all of our blessings in him, for it's in his name that we pray, giving you thanks. Amen.